0: We open the scripture again, this time to Psalm 39. It's a background reading for the text, which is going to be the 62nd Psalm. This is the Word of God. To the chief musician, to Jaduth and the Psalm of David, Psalm 39. I said, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. I was mute, in silence, and I held my peace, even from good. And my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me while I was musing the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end, and what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor, Salah. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. Now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was mute. I did not open my mouth, because it was you who did it. Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor, Salah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner as all my fathers were. Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. And now we turn to Psalm 62, which is the text of the sermon. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in Lies, they bless with their mouth, but they curse in with their Salah. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your congregate, Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Surely men of low degree are a vapor, men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice, I have heard this. The power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. For you render to each one according to his work. Thus far the reading of the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it was an Spurgeon that said, I kiss the wave that throws me up against the rock of ages. I kiss the wave that throws me up against the rock of ages. Now, in the scriptures and in the Christian life, waves are often used to describe tribulations and and turmoil and difficulties in life affliction the psalmists speak of being cast into the depths and the waves crashing over them and going down into the very depths that deep cries out to deep and and that God reaches down and picks them up and and sets them on a rock that is higher than they and that rock is the rock of ages that rock is the Lord Jesus Christ now the waves that crash over us in life, they're a result of a broken world, a world which has fallen into sin. We're human beings. We're sons and daughters of Adam. We live in a world which we destroyed by our sin and disobedience of the fall. And so we taste the bitterness of that and the brokenness of life and sickness and disasters and accidents. But there are Those, that's our original sin. There are waves that crash over us, not just because of the original sin of the human race that we all inherit. But there are also waves that crash over us because of the actual sins that we commit from day to day. And you remember David, what happened to him and what he did. Now in Psalm 62, this is a Psalm of David. He's crying out because the the waves are crashing over him and, and Part of the reason waves are crashing over him is because of his sinful choices. You remember what he did? He, he raped Bathsheba. He murdered her husband. And God said, okay, you, you, you confessed your sin as he did very poetically and deeply and beautifully in Psalm 51. He confessed his sin and God forgave him. And so God takes away the guilt of our sin, but he doesn't always take away the consequences of our sin. And so David, had to live with the consequences. It was a forgiven sin, but the sin brought consequences through the generations. The Lord said to him, the sword shall not depart from your house. And it is not a coincidence that since Psalm 51 in the Psalter, as you read through the scriptures, after Psalm 51, you get a whole pile of Psalms that deal with the sword not departing from David's house. A whole pile of psalms that deal with the enemies attacking him. And not just enemies far away, often people that are very close to him, people that he thought were friends. It's something for us to remember, brothers and sisters. God scrubs away the guilt of our sins, no matter how bad it is. There's no sin too great, too vile, too horrible, too shameful, that the blood of Christ cannot scrub it away and and make you clean again. You don't need to hold on to it. You can come to him and he will forgive it. But then we live often in this world until Jesus returns, often dealing with the consequences of our sin. And so here he is in Psalm 62 and he's in a bad place. Perhaps this is happening in the time of Absalom, his own son, his son who murdered his first son, because his first son Amnon abused and hurt his sister Tamar is just problem after problem after problem in the family. And David doesn't feel very good. He's a, he's a tottering fence. He's a leaning wall. He feels that all it would take is somebody just to give one more push and his whole life is about to come crashing down. He is surrounded by injustice and hatred and abuse and threats and attack and lies and hurt and betrayal from people who say they're his friends, but who want to destroy him. Well, this all happened a long time ago, but we sure can identify with it, right? Because we are assailed as well in our lives by the devil and by the world and by our own sinful flesh. The Christian life is a battle. It is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. When we turn from the world and we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus, that's when it really begins. The fight. The battle. The struggle. Because the Christian life is a battle. It is a battle against the forces of evil. And the battleground is our soul. The battleground is our own heart. That's where it starts. That's where the fight is the fiercest, and we cannot stand for a moment in our own strength. But over and over, we need, like David, to seek refuge in God. And that's the message of this psalm, Psalm 62. Truly, if you have your Bible open, I'll go through it. Uh, verse by verse, it will help you to understand the sermon better if you're looking at the the Bible. Truly my soul silently waits for God. And that first word, truly, is in the Hebrew kind of an exclamation. And it sounds like this in Hebrew, ach, ach. And what it means is truly or surely or however or nevertheless. It is an interjection. So David looks around at all the stuff happening in his life and he says, Ah, nevertheless, my soul silently waits for God. And that word, ah, that word which here in the first verse is translated as truly, it comes back in verse two. Uh, although it's not translated for us in, in, it's hard to translate these little particles sometimes. It comes back in verse four and verse five and verse six and in verse nine. It, It's repeated throughout the psalm, and I'll draw attention to it when we get to those verses. So my soul silently waits for God, and you may read this and think, silently? Is that what I'm supposed to do when I'm hurting, when I'm suffering? I'm supposed to be quiet? Am I a bad Christian because I cry out in my suffering? Well, we read Psalm 39, and you may have noticed as we read Psalm 39 that when David was hard pressed, he kind of alternated between moments of silence. I will guard my ways. I will, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle. And then at other times it's too much. And he just, my, my heart was hot within me while I was musing. The fire burned. My sorrow was stirred up. And then I spoke with my tongue. And so, God isn't telling us that we're going to be quiet. Just shut up. Just deal with it. That's not what God is telling us. Sometimes we're silent. Sometimes we cry out in anguish. But this is where we need to end up. At the end, we need to come to the point of quiet submission. We go through the whole range of emotions. But at the end, where God wants us, is that we silently rest in him. Because from him comes our salvation. Not from a change in circumstances. Not from everything working out the way I want. But I find my hope and my rest in him. He is sovereign. He is in control. And so I will wait patiently. What does the apostle say? Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And that's where God wants us, as he brings us through affliction, as the waves crash over us and difficulties and and troubles uh, come into our lives. He wants us to come to that place of quiet submission to God's providence that no matter how much life hurts and has hurt my heart is at peace because all is well between me and God in Christ and that is enough even though the storm continues around me and so verse 2 we, we don't have the the word ach translated but it's there in the Hebrew ah nevertheless nevertheless The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. He is my rock. He is my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Now look how realistic our brother David is. Look how realistic the Holy Spirit is when he teaches us in the scriptures. You see that word before the word moved? I shall not be greatly moved. I'm going to be moved. Oh yeah. I'm going to be shaken somewhat, but not greatly, not greatly, not too much, not more than I can handle. I shall not be greatly moved. God will hold onto me. I will experience some bumps and some bruises and some shakenness, but but nevertheless, I will stand firm at the end. I will stand firm on that rock. And there he is. He's holding for dear life onto that rock as the, the waves crash against him. The, the waves haven't stopped. But he's got a solid place to hold on to. And those attacks can sometimes be too big and they can sometimes be too strong and God certainly sometimes does give us more than we can handle. And you see there in, in verse, uh, verse 3, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. I, I believe that that's how David sees himself. They're trying to cast him down. You see verse, verse 4, they're trying to cast him down because they feel that it won't take much. So he's feeling that everything's at the point of just falling apart in his life. Just one push, one more problem, one more weight, one more burden, one more affliction, and everything's going to come crushing down. I can't keep things together because there are people... And there are things in my life that present themselves as being on my side and being good for me, but they really want to destroy me. And we sang about that as we sang through Psalm 62 after the Lord. We sang those stanzas 2, 3, and 4 about those enemies that attack us. What are those enemies? The main enemies are the world, the devil, and our old nature. And it's especially our old nature that is very susceptible to connecting with the wicked things in the world around us. And deep, close to deep, our old nature just gravitates towards what will hurt us. You know, we often think our problems are external things. But our problem, our first problem, is right here inside us. It's that fifth column, that old nature. And it... It conspires together with our enemies, which are false teachings or temptations or addictions or all kinds of other sins and tries to bring us down, to destroy us, to take away our joy and our peace in the Lord. And then verse 4, and here again there's that same word, ah, nevertheless, now I may be falling apart, nevertheless, there trying to cast me down from my high position. Of course, this is literally happening when he's running away from his son Absalom. He's he's being cast from the throne in Jerusalem. He's being driven out of the capital city. He's being driven from the kingship. And we may say, well, you know, how does that apply to us? Well, it certainly applies to us. Are we not royal sons and daughters of God? Are we not kings and queens and princes and princesses? Are we not seated in the heavenly places with the Lord Jesus Christ even now? Are we not a nation, a royal nation of priests who will reign with the Lord Jesus Christ over the entire universe forever? We are the royal family of God. Now, who's in danger? Who's in danger of getting assassinated? I don't think any one of us, unless I'm mistaken, there's a great... World leader in our midst this morning, but most assassins wouldn't be bothered with people like us. Thankfully, that's one less thing we have to worry about. But if you're a very important person, then you've got all the security and all the, you know, the the, the special forces that are looking out for you and the snipers and the rooftops because people are out to get you, and that's what's happening to David, and that's what's happening to us spiritually. The devil can't be bothered to go after those who are slaves to sin and and citizens of the kingdom of darkness. He's actually quite fine if they live very plain and ordinary lives and look like good decent people. But the devil's out to get you. He doesn't sleep 24-7. He and his demons are gunning for you because you're great royal sons and daughters of God and he wants to Cast you out of your position and destroy you. He hates you. And we gotta live our lives with that in mind. You know, if you, if you have this clear and present danger in your life, if you have a whole bunch of very powerful beings that are out to destroy you, then you don't just kind of walk along whistling nonchalantly and, and not thinking about any problems. You, you're on, you're on guard. You put on the full armor of God. And you stand firm and you cry out to God for help because, because you're in a battle and there are, there are forces that are out to destroy you. And so you live your life accordingly. And then we come to the end of verse four, that word, salah, which sometimes we don't even read, right? When we're reading the scripture, it's part of the sacred text. It's part of the inspired text, but because we don't really know what it means, we often just skip, (laughs) skip it. But salah, we don't know exactly what it means, but we do understand that it's a, a a musical term, and it seems to just kind of tell us to stop. Perhaps when the psalm was being sung, when the salah comes, then there was a pause, or perhaps even a a musical interlude, and it's just a time to reflect, to stop and think about this. So when you read the scriptures, when you read the psalms, you see the word salah, then that's one way you can take it. Stop, reflect, think about this. And then let's move on to verse 5. And here, in verse 5, we have again that, that little word, which is not always easy to translate. It's actually, in the translation here in verse 5, it's in that word alone. Okay? My soul waits silently for God alone. That's how the translators, translators have, have inserted the idea of the word into this text, into this verse. But it starts in the Hebrew, Ah, nevertheless. Okay, people are out to get me. People are out to destroy me. Everything's going to fall apart. I've got massive uh, bunch of enemies that want to hurt me. But nevertheless, my soul, waits silently for God. Now, do you notice something? It sounds like verse 1, doesn't it? You see verse 1 there? Ah, my soul silently waits. And now look at verse 5. Ah, my soul Wait silently. What's the difference? In in verse 1, he's describing what's happening. This is what's happening. It's the indicative. Here in verse 5, he goes to the imperative. He's telling himself. He's preaching to himself. That's what you do. When life is difficult, and when the enemy presses in against uh, upon you, and when life hurts, and when you're assailed and the waves crash over you, you need to preach to yourself the gospel. My soul, wait. Wait silently for god he's preaching to himself he's preaching the word wait in silence why for my expectation is from him you know brother and sisters so often our expectation is not from him but like god this hurts take away the thing that hurts my expectation is in my life being nicer So give me those things and take those other things away, then everything's fine. That's where my expectation is. I've got cancer, Lord, take away my cancer, then I'll be happy. My child is turning away from the Lord. Fix that, Lord, then I'll be happy. That's where my expectation is. And God says, no. Your expectation must be from me. Only he is my rock and my salvation, my defense. Brother and sister, the entire world around us, our entire life can fall apart. Our family can fall apart. Our friendships can fall apart. Our church community community can, can fall apart. Everything can fall apart. But there's one thing that will not fall apart, and that is that rock upon which our life is built, that fortress in which we find refuge. That's where we need to go. That's where we need to find our hope and our expectation. And then, you see the difference here again? Look here in... In the end of verse 6, he says, I shall not be moved. It's similar, but it's different, right? At the beginning of the psalm, he's like, well, I'm not going to be greatly moved. Maybe I'll wobble a little bit. Things will be a little bit tough. Now he's like, you know what? I'm not going to be moved. I am rock solid on the foundation upon which my life is built. I am rock solid, secure in that fortress which is my Lord and my God in whom I find my refuge. The Lord is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Brother and sister, that is such an important lesson that we have to learn over and over and over. That my salvation, my glory doesn't depend on my circumstances. It doesn't depend on the things being fixed that I think that God should be fixing. It doesn't depend on what people think of me. It doesn't depend on what things I have or what things I don't have. But my salvation and my glory rests on God and he never changes. And here is David, he's on the run, his own son is trying to kill him. Most of the army has turned against him. His throne has fallen into the hands of the enemies. He's got problems. His life is falling apart. And David says that there's one thing that will never fall apart. All of these outward circumstances, as unpleasant and terrifying as they are, as painful as they are, they cannot change who I am. That my only comfort, in life and in death is that I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, to the Messiah, to my God. My life is built and I stand firm on that unshakable foundation of who God is and who I am by God's grace. Now this is not just a personal little nice thing that David has between him and God and that he enjoys. But this is the faith, and the comfort, that is for the entire church, for every individual member of the congregation of God's people. And that's why David proceeds in verse 8 to publicly profess his faith and to call the church to profess with him. Trust in him at all times, you people. And, and, and the Hebrew has the implication of you congregation of the people. He's talking to the church. He's saying, this is not just a thing that I have between me and God. This is a, an article of faith. This is how we, God's people, live. How we stand in a world of pain. We stand on that rock. Trust in Him at all times, O congregation of the people. At all times. Not just sometimes, all times. And, and, and all you people, not just some of you, but everyone. Pour out your heart before Him. That's that's a safe thing to do. Pour out your heart to the Father because He understands and He holds us up. He is a powerful rock of refuge. You know, David thought it was worth saying that. Pour out your heart to Him. All your troubles, just pour them out. You've got a a loving God and Father in Heaven. And He was right. And it was true. And how much more true is it not since... The birth, the suffering, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our troubles and our pain, our fears. He knows. He, he Our Messiah, our Christ, our Lord, our Redeemer is a real man while remaining true God. And he knows what it is to see everything falling apart. He knows what it is to see all of his closest loved ones turn away from him and abandon him. He knows what it is to be all alone in the world and in the darkness. He knows what it is to suffer agony and anguish of mind, of body, of soul. He knows what it is to stand at the grave of a loved one and weep. He knows. He's been there. He has felt what you feel, and most likely felt it a lot more deeply. And he understands when you pour out your heart to him. He is a refuge. He loves you. And he understands your pain. Selah. Well, think about that. Reflect on that. Take time to meditate on that truth. And then we get to verse 9. And here again, we're, we have that that Hebrew word, "ach. Nevertheless, and here it's in the sense of a contrast. However, men of low degree are a vapor. So so on the one hand you have the solid rock of of who God is and he's a refuge. On the other hand you have mist, lies, weight on the scales. They're lighter than vapor. So what is the Holy Spirit calling us to do? He's calling us to, to compare God with, People and with things. Because we seek salvation. We seek glory. We seek satisfaction. We seek peace in people and things. As I've said before in this sermon, Lord, if you would just fix that in my life, I'd be happy. Just heal that relationship. If you just take away this pain. If you just give me this thing, this, this money or this, this worldly good, that then things will be okay. Then I'll be, then I'll be happy. And, the Holy Spirit in the Psalms through David, he says, well, look at the contrast. Now, we often define ourselves by position or influence or accumulated possessions, what people think of us, how many things we have. And God this morning is telling you, that's not where it's at. That's, not, that's nothing to build your life on. That is no foundation at all. That's a foundation of sand. The storms will come up, the rain will come down, the, the winds will rise, and your life will collapse. And you say, well, I'm a Christian. Like, how can you say that to me? I, I build my life on God. Well, do we? Do we? All week long, we scrape and we scrabble and we fight and we, we do so many things to just enjoy a little bit more comfort and ease in this world? How much time and energy do we not invest and use up in trying to have a better life on this earth? How much time do we not spend in entertaining ourselves to find pleasure in the things of this world? Not always necessarily things that are in themselves bad. And how much time do we spend looking to that rock upon which we ought to build our lives? How much time do we spend in prayer per day? How much time do we spend in reading the Holy Scripture per day? You know, you've got, you've got the heretics. You've got the people that hate Christ and the Gospel, that embrace false gods and false religion. And you see them at their work muttering and murmuring hour after hour the words of the Quran as they just drive those words of falsehood and idolatry into their minds. So, so the unbelievers and, and the heretics and those who follow false religions often put us to shame with how much time they invest in the lie compared to how much time we spend on the truth. And the Holy Spirit says, look, it's a vapor, being a real important person, that's just all so falsehood, you put them on the scales, they're lighter than vapor, oppression, robbery, increasing riches, that's not where it's at. Do not set your heart on those things. It reminds me of a, a scene in Pilgrim's Progress, and if you haven't read the book Pilgrim's Progress, after you've read through the scriptures, you should certainly read Pilgrim's Progress, a very, very important book for Christians to read. And there's this, there's this scene where Pilgrim sees this man, he's he's in this cell, he's in this room, and there's this dirty straw, this filth on the floor, and and this man is raking through this muck, looking for little baubles and trinkets and trying to find something of value. And he's spending all his time with his head down in the darkness and the filth, muck raking and looking for something that is of some value compared to the dirt around it. And above him is an angel holding out a golden crown. And all he has to do is look up and see what's really valuable. And he doesn't look up. And all too often, doesn't that describe how we live our weeks, brothers and sisters? With our heads down, we don't look up. we need to be reminded to make a distinction between what is temporary and what is permanent. And that brings us to verse 11. God has spoken. Now there's something permanent. There's something you can build your life on. All flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Isn't that what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? If anybody that hears my words and does them is like a man who builds his house on a rock. It's solid. God is our refuge and we know him in his word. He reveals to us who he is and what he does. And this word is once spoken and it goes forth and accomplishes what he has purposed. It is a rock, solid foundation that you can build your life on. And twice it is heard. And that means that I need to hear it more than once. I need to hear it over and over and over. Because I am weak and I am defenseless in the face of the enemy. In the face of temptation and affliction and suffering and all the sinfulness of my fallen and old human nature which still assails my heart. I am weak. I cannot stand for a moment. I am weak but he is strong. And in the face of the hatred of my enemies, the the devil, the world, and my own sinful heart, my own sinful nature. In the face of the hate and betrayal even of closest friends and family, God shows himself to me as a God of power and a God of mercy. You see there in verse 12, that word mercy also to you, O Lord, belongs Mercy, that's the word. The Hebrew word chesed, it's the word which describes the covenant, steadfast love of God. That's what that word mercy means. His faithful, his unchanging, his unconditional love. And you think of that combination, that he has great power there at the end of verse 11. And that he has great mercy and love there at the the beginning of verse 12. And and you're reminded of the catechism, right? In Lord Say 9 where it says, he is almighty God, he is faithful father, he is able to take care of me because he's almighty God, and he willingly takes care of me because he is my loving and faithful father. It's a great combination. There's an echo of Lord's Day 9 right here in our psalm. Maybe we should put it the other way. Lord's Day 9 echoes the truths confessed and taught in this psalm. So verse 12, you will render to each one according To his work. That's what the psalm ends. Is that a a good ending? Is that reformed? You render to each one according to his work. David, what are you saying here? Does this fit with our theology? Well, that's the wrong question, isn't it? The question is, does our theology fit with the scripture? We know the scripture does not teach... Works righteousness. We know that because the scripture is replete with teaching against works righteousness and it teaches us the sovereign grace of God in Christ. So David is not saying, hey, you better work hard and that you work your way into heaven. That's not what he's saying because that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. What is he saying? He's saying judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Look at the end of, look, look, look at, look what the, the Caligans confesses about waiting for Jesus to come back as the judge. To judge the living and the dead when in all our sorrows and trials and temptations we lift up our heads. And we await from heaven as judge the one who loved us so much that he died for us. And so judgment strikes fear and terror into the heart of the unconverted. But judgment coming is joy and excitement for the one who is in Christ. Because judgment means that everything going to be set right. everything's going to be restored. Everyone and everything that loves sin and celebrates pain and brokenness, hatred, betrayal, decay, that will all be judged perfectly and righteously. And those who hold on to those vile things will be banished from God's presence and from the earth. Everything, everyone that tries to hurt you and destroy you will be wiped away if they do not turn from their sin confess their sin and find reconciliation in christ it's all going to be wiped away every tear will be wiped from our eye so judgment is coming is exciting for the child of god and and you may say well i'm a sinner so doesn't that strike terror i mean i have i've got sins I've, i've done things wrong i do things wrong i should I not be in terror of the coming judgment? Brother and sister, of course you're a sinner. There's only one perfect human being, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are two types of sinners. There are forgiven sinners, and there are sinners who are impenitent, who continue in their hardness of heart. Which type are you? Because ordinarily, the sinner in communion with Christ in the church, who is not a hypocrite, is a sinner who is washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those sins are gone, and he knows them no more. Praise the Lord, the great son of David. His entire life he was attacked by all the demonic forces of darkness and hell. He was driven into the very bottom of the abyss. He was hated by his own people. He was betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends. He was stripped of all his possessions. At the end, he didn't even have clothing. He was reduced to nothing. And even in the worst of the darkness, he held on to God and to his word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He still said, my God. He held on even when it looked like it didn't make a lot of sense to hold on anymore. He held on. Jesus walked the way of the cross. And the way of the cross, the way of suffering, it led to... Victory, it led to salvation, it led to glory. And Jesus calls you, brother and sister, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow him, to build your life on this solid foundation that every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. The waves may crash over you, the waves may crash against you, but you cling. To the rock of ages. And when you're too weak to hold on. He will hold on to you. He's not going to let go. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Towards you in Christ Jesus your Lord. You stand firm on the promises of the word of God. In all of your weakness. But in his strength. You can fight the good fight. You can run the race. And henceforth there is laid up for you. The crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to you on that day. Not only to you, but to all who have loved his appearing. Amen.